Hello, this is the Making Europe podcast to accompany the Making Europe book series. So, who did make Europe? This podcast may change your outlook on modern European history and how the European Union came to be. Each podcast in this series gives a new story that provides clues as to why the EU is potentially being unmade, giving insights to the challenges and debates facing the continent. Your interviewer is Geraldine Bloomfield. She will be interviewing the authors of the six editions to discover the alternative stories from the history of technology that shaped and influenced the Europe we know today. This episode features Andreas Fickers, who, together with Pascal Grisset, professor of modern history at Sorbonne University, has written the book Communicating Europe. Hello, so today with us we have um, Andreas Vickers, Professor for Contemporary and European History at the University of Luxembourg and Director of the Luxembourg Centre for Contemporary and Digital History. Welcome. Hello. We're going to talk today about your edition in the Making Europe series, Communicating Europe. Before we start the interview, let's jump into the story. The fine-tuning of radio and its audience. In 1930, Hans, a 15-year-old Dutch boy, experienced the wonder of traveling through Europe by simply turning the dial of his self-constructed receiver. Hilversum II was precisely at the right spot. The red calibration indicator stood right in the middle of the 298-meter wavelength panel. He moved along the whole dial, and most of the stations came in very clearly. Luxembourg and Lille played dance music. A man in Munich said, Achtung, meine Damen und Herren. A symphony orchestra was performing in Strasbourg, and... Here is the national program, said a lady in Droitwich. Brussels followed, one and two, and London, Paris, Rome. Yes, Rome. Hilversum won, Vienna, Stuttgart, Beromünster. Hans listened to an opera in Paris, to gramophone music from Rome, and lovely violin music from Stuttgart. All Europe was right there. He traveled in one turn on the dial from Hilversum to Vienna, from Rome to London. He heard voices from strangers hundreds of kilometers away, as if they were standing next to him. And he immediately understood the meaning of what he had read in so many radio advertisements. Make the world your neighbor. The Dutch writer Leonard Rogeveen beautifully shows in his book for young people called The Radio Detective Draadloze Ogen, The Radio Detective Wireless Eyes, how a 15-year-old boy turned into a radio detective while surfing the dial of his radio set. The anecdote of Hans is symptomatic for the excitement that came with the appropriation of radio as a new communication technology in the 1920s. The domestication of the radio receiver as a new communication technology 
was a long and complex process. Before calibrated station scales appeared in the late 1920s, you could only find individual stations by the process of fine-tuning. This called for a concentrated dedication of the haptic and acoustic senses, or fine motor skills. To explore the broadcast spectrum, several circuits had to be adjusted individually by rotating the control knobs sequentially in small increments until a station was heard. Next, several precise readjustments were necessary to bring in the desired program with clarity and volume. The development of automatic tuning devices was an indispensable condition for the transformation of the radio. From a tinkerer's or amateur's plaything to a mass medium. Central steps in this gradual process were embedding the components, at first exposed, in a cabinet, reducing the number of tuning knobs and integrating the loudspeaker into the cabinet. Manufacturers aimed to make radio listening dead simple. Their technological dream was a receiver operable with one knob. In 1930, the British radio manufacturer Murphy placed an advertisement that read We were not blessed with three hands. This alone indicates that shrinking the functions needed to operate a receiver was a central goal. The effort to win over a larger public as potential buyers was targeted especially at women. A Telefunken notice of 1927 to the company's licensed dealers contained this word of advice. Please keep in mind that most of your customers are not experts, nor can they afford to employ some kind of radio chauffeur to operate their receiver. A 1934 issue of the French journal Radio Diffusion predicted the single knob receiver will lead women to broadcasting, just as the electrical ignition led them to the automobile. The gradual simplification of the operation of the radio set after the mid-1920s exemplifies the functional and symbolic transformation of radio technology as the radio apparatus became a piece of furniture and its technical innards successfully hidden. The calibrated station scale or radio dial marked an important step in the symbolic transformation of the radio set into an interface for mediated participation in the European broadcasting space. The dial presented a virtual roadmap for journeying through the ether. The radio station on the dial evoked the actual station, inviting the listener to linger for a while. In this sense, the new broadcasting space was not only shaped by the technological infrastructure of sender networks, and the regulatory regime of the International Broadcasting Union, responsible for the allocation of specific frequencies and transmission power to individual stations, it was also actively co-constructed by the radio listener. The listener became a working partner in the spatialization of this world. While turning the dial and tuning to a station by its city name, the listener transformed the vast broadcast space into a specific, meaningful place. In this sense, acts of radio listening 
viewing and tuning represent acts of symbolically appointing Europe as a communication space. Would you like to tell us a bit about why you chose this story? Yes, um, I chose this story because it is somehow emblematic to what we try to do in this book, that is really to, on the one side, deconstruct the complexity of uh, a European technological infrastructure, in that case, radio broadcasting, but on the other side also to demonstrate how users of that new medium, in that case radio, played a vital role in co-constructing the imaginary of this technology being, yeah, revolutionary, being something very special and, yeah, being a new way of feeling or being European. So how the audience took it into their heart, how they um, defined what the radio meant to them. Exactly. Yeah. It, it was not just a technical miracle, so to speak. It was a new way of discovering uh, the world. And in that case, in discovering uh, the European radio landscape as a new space that really transcended the national or the local spaces that people were used to. Mm. So if we um, pedal back, what inspired you to... Uh, research that story? What ignited your imagination to the radio? I did after my studies a practical course at the Deutsches Museum in Munich, one of the biggest and oldest museums of technology in the world. And uh, from that moment on, I had a real passion for thinking about history from objects. And the radio sat as an object from the very early uh, moments on really stirred my imagination and my curiosity also, because it is a designed object. It is an object that speaks as a symbolic form to the user, but at the same time hides in a way black boxes, a very complex technological inner life that I wanted to understand and by yeah, doing so, I had to really dig deep into dimensions of that history that were totally yeah, hidden to me before uh, looking at that object in, in a different way. So in a way, I always try to combine different perspectives in, in doing history of technology. And in that case, looking at the object from... Um, uh, uh, from uh, the, the front side, so to speak. What does the object tell me? So you're looking at the body and the bones of the object, exactly. but also into the soul of the radio. The radio, sat in a, in a way, is, is a figure, is a face. It has a mouth, the loudspeaker. It has eyes. Uh, uh, in, in the early days, in the 1930s, you have uh, this, uh, this little... Um, uh, called the, the magic eye that yes, that lights up when you tune in to the right frequency. So the object really interacts with you. You not just listen to radio, you watch the radio mm. set. And you're watching in your head too, also with the images that are arriving to you. 
yes. through it. Yeah. And and this specific story shows that technical objects through, for example, the specific design of the radio dial um, are objects that co-construct a way of interacting with it. So turning the dial of that radio set was like a virtual travel through the European landscape. Yes. You could, by turning the knob, go from places unknown like Beromünster to Helversum to Radio Moscow. So yes. really it was a virtual travel through the European uh, either. Yeah, and extremely exciting for the first people who adopted um, the radio. Um, so you talked about how, um, can you expand on how um, the radio helped create um, a European communication space? So some of the activities that had to take place for that to be enabled so that we could have the radio landscape um, that came to be and also has influenced the one we have today. Yes. So in order to to make this happen, to be able to switch stations by turning simply uh, one knob, uh, the radio had gone through uh, a long technological development of some 10 years of really turning it from a technical object that needed a lot of skills into a mass medium. So the development of design uh, of this dial, of turning it into a piece of furniture, was the result of really turning it from a technical object into a mass medium. Without that, this would not have been possible. But the story behind is that uh, for this to happen, the European radio uh, landscape had to be tamed in a way. The new medium was so fascinating for people that everybody started, or not everybody, but millions of young people yeah. started tinkering with that object and not only listening, but also producing sounds, transmitting. That was possible at the very beginning of radio. So within a few years, you had thousands of small stations popping up all over the, the continent, and this created total cacophony on the either. Like we do now with user-generated content for social media. Yes. So this was like a really early form it was, of that. It was. Yeah. But at that time, it really was a two-way communication technology, which also triggered uh, high uh, democratic uh, hopes for using that technology as a new form of communication. But very soon, as is often the case in the history of communication technologies, when it becomes a successful medium, the state comes in as an actor and tries to uh, control, to tame, uh, to regulate the new technology. And this exactly also happened with uh, radio then in the 1920s. But it was also absolutely necessary because the either had turned into a mass. And uh, so in order to make use of that medium, frequency plans were developed. So the idea was to do, to say to each of the, the stations transmitting, be it uh, supported by the state or private companies, that they become assigned, allotted one single frequency 
on the frequency spectrum available for radio broadcasting. And so, that was their home within that map. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the map is in a way the, the visualization of that regulatory effort that had to take place in order to make, make radio work in a transnational communication space as uh, the European one. So in 1925 already, the International Broadcasting Union uh, was created with the aim to allot specific frequencies to specific stations and also to define the power in which these stations could transmit in order to avoid interferences. Because that was really the big problem in the 1920s that uh, when people tried to listen to radio, you had constant interferences from other signals coming in, uh, two powerful stations uh, disturbing uh, the reception. And so you needed regulation yeah. and that was done by the IBU. So at that time, um, did the radio dial still have various components to it? Had we reached the point where we had one dial that, as you said, was housed, and the rest of the technology was housed behind it in terms of how was the radio bought into the mass market and to the audience of housewives? Tell me about how that evolved. Yeah, I think the radio dial had a really crucial uh, importance in the what we call the domestication of that technology. And, and that means that the technical skills that were necessary at the beginning of radio technology to, to tune in um, became simplified, became reduced basically to the turning on of the set by one knob and then the turning of the dial to change uh, stations. So when you look at advertisements of the 19, late 1920s, you feel, uh, you can see a lot of um, advertisers saying, yeah, we, we are not blessed with three hands, so yes, yeah. we, we cannot deal that technology. And also women's hands were very delicate and they didn't really have the motor skills, did they? Exactly. That was the thinking of the time, which, you know, as a woman now reading that and picking up on that, I find that interesting. Definitely. I um, mean, it was a boy's toy mm. in the early 1920s and it turned into a mass medium by the end of that decade thanks to this uh, design interventions, so to speak, and that made it accessible to, to a larger audience, especially women, but also children. So radio listening should become that easy, yeah. and it, it became. Yeah, and that's where Hans comes into the story, right. um, which you talk about. So in terms of creating European integration and collaboration. Um, in recent times, can you think of uh, a technology that has been similar to the radio? Um, have, can, is there anything that we can think of that went on a similar journey or evolution? Or was radio quite unique? No, radio was not unique in, in a sense that um, we we see with the internet right now also this idea of a two-way communication uh, medium going maybe in the coming years through the same kind of regulatory uh, regime that we have seen with other um, yeah, broadcasting technologies. So I wouldn't be surprised that, and we see it already in some countries, that the state again is coming in and trying to control 
what is being uh, produced and circulated uh, and appropriated. Uh, but at the same time, you have this, this potential of circumventing control and censorship. Um, um, yeah, so in a way, radio, we can learn a lot uh, from radio history when thinking about how the internet as a political communication medium and, and space is being yeah, analyzed and discussed uh, right now. Also in, in radio, we know it has been misused for propaganda uh, purposes. Uh, the Cold War is full of a yeah, history of jamming, of trying to avoid people to receive certain signals, but also of very creative strategies of circumvention, of kind of yeah, alternative way of uh, appropriation of that uh, technology for uh, democratic uh, purposes. So what lessons would you say we could learn from the radio to apply to the internet today and to the digital age for Europe going forward? What would you hope to see happen I'm I'm quite intrigued with what we see right now in in the f field of social media and the way we think about digital human rights at this point of time and that the internet is not a space without rules or without law uh, and um, the same was with radio in the 1920s and and 30s and I think we need rules, we need regulation, but we don't need censorship and full control. And this is exactly what happened in, in radio history, that this technology needed to be tamed, needed to be regulated in a certain way in order to make it work. But at the same time, the state should stay out of controlling the content of what is being uh, transmitted and circulated. Okay, thank you. Thank you for a really interesting discussion and for joining us today to talk about communicating Europe. It was my pleasure. So that concludes this episode. To know more about the Making Europe book series, visit makingeurope.eu. To join the debate, find us on Twitter, Subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. The Making Europe podcast was initiated by Johan Schott. Financed by the Foundation for the History of Technology the Center for Global Challenges at Utrecht University and the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies. The podcast is realized and produced by Sun City, Geraldine Bloomfield and Susanne Lommers.